All right, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. Thank you so much for coming today. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program and Vice President for Policy Programs here at the Aspen Institute. And I'm really uh, delighted that you're all here for this conversation about the end of loyalty, the rise and fall of good jobs in America. Um, this book is a great book for the Work and Wealth series, which this conversation is a part of. Uh, the central tenet of the American dream is the idea that if you work hard, you can succeed. And success is usually measured by financial stability, the ability to support a family, own a piece of property, um, save for retirement, invest in your kid's future, and maybe even take a vacation once in a while. So for years, the middle class America thrived because hard work created a degree of wealth that allowed people to achieve these relatively modest goals. But one of the key challenges we face today is that the link between work and wealth is being severed. And a key question of how to reconnect work and wealth is key to reviving the American dream, and it is a question that animates the Reconnecting Work and Wealth initiative. Reconnecting Work and Wealth is a joint set of work led by the Economic Opportunities Program and the Financial Security Program here at the Aspen Institute. Together, our programs are exploring how critical changes in recent decades are reshaping both labor and financial markets and leaving working families more vulnerable. Through publications, public events, and intensive dialogues that involve leaders in industry, academia, philanthropy, government, and nonprofit organizations, we're trying to advance a conversation on how to ensure that hard work can lead to the economic stability and mobility in today's economy. To learn more about the Work and Wealth series, I invite you to uh, go to the website, as.pn slash workandwealth. And of course, we could not uh, be engaged in this Work and Wealth series without support, and we are extremely grateful 
to the Ford Foundation, the Prudential Foundation, and the Kellogg Foundation for their support of the Work and Wealth Initiative. Uh, just a couple logistical notes. One, I just want to mention, we do have books for sale in the lobby, if you didn't see that. But And uh, uh, Rick will be staying for a few minutes after to sign books, so I hope you take advantage of that opportunity. Um, today's conversation is being live streamed, so do please silence your phones, but do please tweet. Um, our hashtag is WorkinWealth. And now it is my great pleasure to turn it over to my uh, brilliant colleague and dear friend who is my collaborator in the Work and Wealth Initiative, Ida Rademacher, Executive Director of the Financial Security Program. Thanks, Part of the joy of being at Aspen is to be able to collaborate across programs uh, and think about how we can use the platforms here at Aspen to put a spotlight on leadership and real bold thinking uh, and future thinking ideas. And work and wealth is a perfect topic, and uh, the Economic Opportunities Program is uh, just the best collaborator with the Financial Security Program to advance this work. Um, I'm going to get out of the way really fast. I just want to welcome uh, our two speakers and thank them for their time, uh, not just today, but for the the, the careful, thoughtful spade work that's gone into both the writing of the book, The End of Loyalty, by Rick Wartzman and uh, Neil Irwin, who's a senior economics correspondent for the New York Times, with the way that he's uh, covering uh, these and a whole set of contextual issues and writing in his own way in one of his most recent pieces about the two janitors, um, kind of looking at how the changing nature of work and the changing nature of corporate governance is driving uh, both the conversation about declining share of income uh, among workers, but also the declining share of wealth. And so we want to look at those pieces and unpack them today. So to do that, we have Rick Wartzman, who's director of the K.H. Moon Center for a Functioning Society. I just love that name, too, by the way. I mean, talk about just, we could use a few more centers for functioning society. Right now. Um, uh, that's part of the Drucker Institute at the Claremont Graduate University in California. And Rick, before uh, being there, uh, many of you would have known that he was uh, a Wall Street Journal and LA Times journalist for many years, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist in his own right uh, in that work. Uh, and so we're just delighted that he is here to talk about his latest book, The End of Loyalty, and a lot of the other ways that that um, set of work feeds into a set of future setting conversations. And then to interview him and to just really carry on a conversation that they've started in a few other forums recently <laughs> is Neil Irwin, uh, who I just mentioned is the senior economics correspondent for the New York Times. He writes for The Upshot. Uh, his own book, which came out a couple of years ago now, but had uh, long legs in terms of helping us understand the financial crisis, was called The Alchemist, Three Central Bankers and a World on Fire, which I also recommend to you all. Uh, so I just want to welcome Neil and Rick, and uh, thank you for being here, and take it away. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks, Ida. Uh, Rick, we have a, a huge topic, and I, I loved your book, and, and the way you, you. Um, kind of connected a lot of what's happened in the past with large companies, employment practices, uh, with some of the challenges we face in the, in the modern economy. Um, let's start with that history. Um, you, you tell about, uh, in particular, you focus on General Motors, uh, General Electric, Coca-Cola, and Eastman Kodak um, as kind of symbols of a, of a broader era of, of how large companies worked in, in the mid, middle part of the 20th century. Um, but it wasn't always that way. Can, can you take us to kind of the origin story of this model of employment uh, back to World War II, back to the, the kind of genesis of what we now remember as, as that era? Yeah, so um, what I talk about in the book is kind of the golden age, uh, this post-World War II era um, uh, that really, you know, began in the mid to late 40s and carried through to the early 
1970s. And, and I should say right off the bat that this was a golden age with a, with a big asterisk. So it was golden age mainly for white men uh, in, in the workforce. Um, it was you know, incredible amounts of, of blatant discrimination uh, for people of color and for women, still all too much of that today, um, but, but sort of amazing to dip into the history and realize just how uh, corporate America just put it out there. Um, uh, but nonetheless, it was a golden age for a huge swath of the workforce. And um, you know, what you, I think you really saw kind of, uh, I use these four companies as a window into these, these bigger issues. There were several things that, that sort of shaped what I describe as the social contract between employer and employee um, in this post-war era. And uh, I define the social contract as job security, uh, pay, um, company provided health care, and uh, health care coverage uh, and retirement security. Actually, then they had these things called pensions um, <laughs> back then. And, uh, and so I, I described the, the rise of those. Um, and, and I think coming out of World War II, I, I see several forces that kind of led to the rise of all of those things. Um, one was simply circumstance. And, and there are many who say, look, big American corporations like those four, they could afford to be very generous. And indeed, they could. The US had, we had bombed our global competition pretty much to its knees. And, uh, and big American companies produced an inordinate amount of the world's goods. Um, you had soldiers returning home. And so you had the baby boom. Uh, you had this really the rise of this immense American middle class um, and a huge consumer culture uh, that was, you know, that was born and, and um, that all happened in this period. So big American companies could afford to be generous. You also had um, an interesting thing that's come back a little bit, um, which is there was, I think, conventional wisdom among executives in those days, almost this Keynesian idea that you had to put enough money in people's pockets um, to fuel that consumer economy. There's a, there's a great quote in my book from um, Charlie Wilson, who was the president of General Electric. Um, back uh, in this post-war age. And he said, how, how are they going to buy my refrigerators if we don't give them enough wages? Um, and I think they saw this logic. And, and of course, you know, as you've written about and others, you know, there's some concern now that you know, what, what Larry Summers calls secular stagnation. We're not actually uh, providing enough good incomes for people to, to keep the consumer economy humming, that that was a factor. Um, two other quick, quick things. One was there was fear that drove some of the generosity of companies. So there was a lot of concern that you had tens of millions of uh, servicemen returning home from the war. And uh, there was real fear. You can read all these studies that America was headed for another depression, perhaps one worse than what had unfolded in the 1930s. And corporate leaders uh, really saw it as their, in their own self-interest. If, if we don't provide good jobs, with good benefits and good security, might have bread lines worse than ever. And then the economy, the country might actually tip into you know, socialism or, God forbid, communism. Really viable alternatives, seen as viable alternatives in those, in those days. And finally, and this is, I think, in some ways, the biggest shift we've seen. And that is coming out of the Depression and World War II, I think there was very much a we're all in this together kind of an ethic. Um, and that was really kind of the national culture. And I think corporate culture both reflected and reinforced those societal norms. And so it was much more of a we culture than an I culture then. And 
I think as the country's gotten away from that, so have corporations. So, so to make sure we're all kind of on the same page, um, suppose I am a, uh, I'm getting out of the military after World War II or Korea, or I'm one of the older baby boomers kind of coming out of high school in the 60s. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm a white male. Uh, uh, what, what can I plausibly expect if I uh, sign on at one of these big companies that, that is so successful? What, what is different about the career I'm entering if I'm that person than, than what a young person today might encounter? Right. So one, I think one we can dispel with a myth that is out there that you, know, you hear a lot about um, lifetime employment. And uh, there were some really interesting studies I saw done in the 50s and 60s that actually suggested you know, no men, in, or particularly early in their career, would often change jobs quite a bit. And, and it wasn't uncommon to work for you know, 10 different employers over the, you know, the course of time, but usually early in your career. And then you would settle into a place. And then you would pretty typically maybe work at one uh, company for you know, 20 or 30 or 40 years. Um, if you reached middle management, that was really great job security. Um, middle managers, it really was lifetime employment once you, once you settled in. Um, very little turnover, unless you, again, wanted to move. Um, and then if you didn't have, and this is, I guess, the other really big shift, if you didn't have you know, much education or you know, too many skills, you could still do OK. You know, it was that era where you could walk into a factory and uh, it was hard work. It was really brutal work in many, many ways. But you could find a path to the middle class. And particularly if you were in an industry that was unionized, uh, another thing that has largely disappeared in the private sector, um, you could make a good living with good health care benefits and good retirement security. And you know, your, your kids had even better prospects because you had that, that kind of stability. So, so these businesses, even then, they're not charities. They, they obviously felt like if you're a CEO of one of these companies in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you're getting something out of this. What, what did the companies feel was worthwhile about having these kinds of practices, having these kinds of pay structures? Yeah. I think there, you know, again, I think there was a, a measure of stability that they, that they relied on. And, and look, I don't want to make the past seem overly rosy. You know, a, a lot of the, the gains um, that workers won were really hard fought because they were, the social contract in many ways was forged by organized labor. Um, and, you know, there was often blood spilled, literally, to, to win the kinds of gains that they won. Uh, the important thing, and I spend a lot of time on organized labor um, early in the book because to me, they, you know, the auto workers, the electrical workers, the steel workers, they did more than just help their own members. Um, it's pretty clear from the scholarship that when you get to 25 to it was about 35% of its height of the private sector workforce in this country carrying a union card, there's a tremendous spillover effect. And so other employers, whether just to keep up and attract talent or because they wanted to keep unions at bay, they had to kind of match what these big industrial unions were doing. Unions also, even for, in terms of benefits, the, what they won at, in, through collective bargaining at the negotiating table would set the pattern for white collar workers as well. And so there was this tremendous spillover effect that, that lifted the whole of the economy. But those, there was always a lot of tension. Those, those were hard fought. What I think companies had, again, it was, it was a very different mindset. CEOs in that era spoke in terms of a stakeholder model. They, they talked very much about balancing the interests of all of their constituencies. So uh, 
their customers, the communities they operated in. They used to even brag how much they paid in taxes, um, as opposed to bragging about how much they're offshoring so they don't have to pay taxes. Um, they would uh, talk about their shareholders, for sure, uh, and the importance of taking care of them, but their workers, very much. And they tried to balance all these things. Um, and, and that was the mindset. And you know, beginning in the 70s and accelerating, I think, through today, uh, we've had this real shift to a maximizing shareholder value model. And, and that's just different when you explicitly put investors over all those other constituencies. It's, it's math. You know, the pie, you just carve it up different, and workers get less and investors get more. It's funny. I, uh, for the, the, the story about the janitors where I contrasted uh, uh, people at Apple today to Kodak uh, in, in an earlier era, I, yep. I, I was in Rochester, and I went through about 50 years of annual reports of Kodak. And it was striking, the ones from the 60s and 70s, almost every year, the first page of the annual report has right on there, number of total employees, number of US employees, total wages and benefits paid. Um, you know, it was clear that this was something they were proud of and were trying to essentially advertise and say, you know, this is, um, this is something that, that shows what we're doing for America. One year there was an entire section on what they contribute to the US balance of payments. Um, there you go. Not something you see very often anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so you touched on, so I, I have a, a whole long question written out here, and, and I'm, and I'm going uh, to read it, and I'm going to say that I think you maybe already answered and, and get you to expand on that. You know, one argument is that the big shift um, is fundamentally economic, that uh, you know, these companies enjoyed this massive protected market, less international competition. Another is that the shift is political, that there were stronger legal protections for unions, high marginal tax rates, disincentivized high CEO pay. Another is cultural, that there was just a different mentality among kind of the executive class of this era. Um, so I, I was going to ask how you weight these expectations. From what you've said so far, it seems like you're saying it's hard to disentangle those three things, that they really all kind of uh, affected each other. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, I, th I think that's right. I, I think all too often we try and find the one reason for um, why uh, you know, we're in the predicament we're in as a country and why so many people feel left behind and, and why we've stopped sharing prosperity as broadly as we once did. Um, and you know, my reading of the history, you know, one of the great things about looking through the lens of these, these four big companies um, is you could see all of those forces playing out. And you can, you know, economists too, you know, they, they and, and it's not unimportant. I mean, to know what's causing the problem helps you devise the right policy solutions, right? You don't want to put a lot of resources into something that even if you get it right, it's not going to fix the thing. So I, I understand the import of that. But, but I think we spend maybe too much time trying to figure out you know, what's, what's a few percentage points more important, uh, you know, globalization or automation or the decline of unions or it, it's, it's all of these things. Uh, and you, again, you can see all these massive forces playing out through at different times and different ways, very clearly through the lens of these four companies. And I suspect I could have picked, you know, another hundred different companies and you would have the same story. So we talked about the emergence of this model in the 40s and 50s. Uh, let's talk about how, uh, how it started to unwind, how it uh, started to come undone. Take us to the 70s and 80s and, and, and what are the shifts that, uh, that started making things change? So, again, by, you know, by my reading of the history, first of all, you, you had the rise of global competition. Um, and in many cases, you had uh, companies in countries that had now leapfrogged past the US in terms of quality, 
you know, in, in one industry after another. You know, one, one of the worst things that can happen, Peter Drucker actually used to, uh, the namesake of my institute, used to say this all the time. He'd say, what's the worst thing that can happen to a company? You know, people would be thinking, he'd say, success. <laughs> and I think that's what happened to a lot of these big U.S. companies. They did get kind of fat and happy and lazy, and they stopped investing so much. They were still riding off a lot of the R&D that had been done during World War II. Um, and the GM cars of the 70s were not that good. They were not that good. That's right. <laughs> yes, it, it, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. And, um, and so you had, right, in, in autos and consumer electronics and steel and, you know, in all kinds of industries, just the rise of global competition. I think more and more over time you are feeling the effects of, of automation and technology. Um, I think that uh, you are certainly starting to see a shift from a blue-collar economy to a knowledge work economy, and these paths to the middle class for those who didn't have education were starting to, starting to take hold. Uh, even then, it was the early seeds of that. Um, so you had these major forces, you know, kind of all, all bearing down. Unions were really in decline. Um, and then we, of course, went through, you know, in the early 70s, the worst recession that we had had since the Great Depression. It was coupled with staggering levels of inflation. I mean, the economy was just, you know, was just a mess. Um, and uh, there was a lot of pressure on companies, you know, to try and survive in that kind of climate. Um, and meanwhile, you had pressure from investors that began. And so this was one of the first areas where you saw, you know, then they were called corporate raiders, I guess. And there's some of the same names around now, the Carl Icons and the Boone Pickens and, uh, you know, Harold Simmons. Some involved running the government. Yeah, yes, ex yes, exactly. And they started to show up and put pressure on companies to return more to shareholders. And we can talk about this. I mean, there was a whole kind of intellectual movement that I think gave them some cover and sort of legitimized what the pressure they were putting on, on executives. And that also, to me, you had all these big forces going on that we talked about. And then the gasoline kind of on the fire became this shift to maximize for shareholder value above all else. And, and so you could have looked and said, in an old stakeholder model, you might have said, there are all these big forces bearing down on my workers. Right, globalization, you know, all these competition from, from low-wage countries and automation. Maybe we need to do more to help invest in them and, and shore them up. But instead, the impulse was to turn the other way and actually say, we're going to give them less and we're going to give shareholders more. I mean, there are some missteps by unions in this, in this Absolutely. period. Absolutely. What, yeah. what, uh, what did the labor movement do wrong in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, so first of all, you know, I think one of the, well, one of the things was there was a period of corruption um, for a lot of unions, got a lot of public attention. I think the public lost confidence in unions as an institution. Um, there were a lot of missteps in terms of organizing or kind of lack of organizing where um, Harold Meyerson's done great work on this showing how unions stopped uh, investing uh, in organizing new members. They became big bureaucracies, kind of taking care of the people who were there but not thinking about growth for the future. And this was amid these big structural changes in the economy. So by the time they looked up, we had moved to a, a much more of a service economy where it's harder to organize big masses of workers. and you know, and they sort of looked up and the world had changed and, and they hadn't done enough to invest. And then, I, and then I would say, you know, there's another thing that in the, if you look at the rise of unions in the 30s and 40s, there was more of a, you know, raison d'etre. It was, it was really, you know, conditions were so bad and pay was so bad that, that, that there was a real union movement because there needed to be. And by the time they had won all these gains, I think, you know, 
Walter Ruther, head of the auto workers, he despaired. He said, I think we've lost our soul a little bit. Um, and so I think all those things happened. And then, and then the biggest force of all was that really beginning in the late 50s and then accelerating through time, um, companies made a very, again, looking at corporate America by and large, made the decision that they were going to clamp down on organized labor and do everything they could. Um, there had been a brief period of labor peace. It brought some good things, some stability with these long contracts, a grievance system set up so people could work out their problems without it escalating too much. But they decided the cost of that, I think, was too much in terms of the gains won by unions. And they did everything they could to stamp out unions through means both legal and illegal. And I think that's the biggest factor of all of why unions have declined. So back on the on the buyout firms and, and that and the kind of shareholder uh, uh, model of the, that evolved in the 80s, um, I mean it is true that if you were a CEO in the 60s, you could empire build and, and build a conglomerate and uh, not be too worried about uh, you know a buyout firm coming after you and and launching an activist campaign. Um, what's explore some how what the relationship is between that and the uh, the the end of kind of this model of, uh, of employer relations. Right. So when, so again, you know, it was by the 70s, you know, companies, again, look at corporate America, its record was not very good. I mean, many companies were, you know, not even returning their cost of capital. They were, they were really not doing well financially. And shareholders were, were angry. Um, and again, then you had sort of simultaneously this, this intellectual movement that began sort of in the 70s. And, and a lot of people, trace it to this famous Milton Friedman essay in the Sunday New York Times magazine, um, where he wrote about what, what he termed corporate social responsibility. And um, he said that corporations really only have one social responsibility, and, and that is for their managers to act as the agents of the shareholders. And he said that for them to do anything else was, uh, in his words, pure and unadulterated socialism. Um, including, by the way, he said fostering employment. That that's not something that corporate managers should be worried about. They should be the agents of the shareholders. And shareholders, he said, generally want one thing. They want to make more profit and watch the stock go up. And so uh, this began a kind of a, a broader intellectual movement. Um, there were some academics and, and sort of the business world circles. This guy, Michael Jensen, most famously, who was at the University of Rochester and then at Harvard. Um, who wrote a lot about this, and, and people like Boone Pickens cited his work in saying, you know, we're, we're justified. We have this sort of scholarly, you know, imprimatur around us. We, we, can, we can push for this agency theory that managers have one job, which is to lift stock price. And then the thing that really sealed the deal was that uh, executive compensation, CEO compensation, began to be linked to stock price. So it was always that if you look back in the 50s and 60s, CEOs were paid in part based on stock. They got stock, they got stock options. But it was a pretty, it was a fraction of their compensation. You know, today, depending on how you measure it, big company CEOs are compensated anywhere from 50 to 85% based on stock. And so, you know, what do you do if, if you're a CEO? You know, it's suddenly in your personal interest to watch the stock price go up, often in the short term. So how, what's the fastest way to do that? You, what's the fastest way to raise profit? You drive down costs. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to, to realize that 
you know, in that scenario, workers begin to look like an avoidable expense, uh, not like an asset that you invest in. So um, I want to evolve, before we go to your questions, to um, uh, this question of what are the lessons of this era and what are the aspects that can be emulated in a 21st century economy? To what degree is this a, a nice story of nostalgia and here's how it once was? And to what degree are there lessons from how things worked in the 20th century that could be applied to even in this era of globalization technology? So I, I guess I would start just there. Um, so first on the globalization side, you know, is there a way that, that um, something more resembling these labor practices can coexist with global competition and, and that we can enjoy the benefits of globalization without some of the, the, the costs that uh, you're describing? Yeah, look, I, I'm not one who thinks that we're going to go back to this golden age and hopefully in a more inclusive way. You know, that I, I think this post-World War II period was an extraordinary time and, and kind of a blip historically. Um, but it, it also doesn't mean we can't um, rebalance things and move more back in that direction anyway. And, um, and, and again, share prosperity more, more broadly. Um, and so, you know, I, I have a whole laundry list of things I'd love to see happen, um, a bunch in the public policy arena. I mean, when it comes to globalization, uh, when it comes to automation, I mean, we just do a terrible job in this country of um, taking care of people who are dislocated. Um, you know, job training programs are a real mixed bag. Um, we, cert I, by, by my lights, we don't invest nearly enough in that. I think employers have largely abdicated their role and responsibility in that system and need to do much, much more than they're doing. There's certainly some exceptions and some wonderful exceptions, but they are the exception. Um, so, I, you know, I think there needs to be a lot more, a lot more investment in that. Um, you know, again, the biggest, one of the biggest things I think we could do is, is move more back into a kind of longer-term oriented, more balanced stakeholder approach as opposed to a maximizing shareholder value approach. You know, the numbers are, are pretty striking. So if we had carved up the pie, the sort of the, the corporate profit pie, over the last 40 years as we had uh, in the 30 years following World War II, and remember, corporate profits have been at record levels right, in recent years. You know, somebody making you know, $40,000 a day would be making $60,000. Um, know, know, that's a lot of money that's just been redirected. So I don't think we can stop these big forces, globalization, automation, the shift to knowledge work, nor should we try. Over time, they should grow the pie. You know, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not a protectionist. I think those things are all good. But then it's a question of, well, then how do you share the pie? And I, I believe that we need to relook at, at how, it's being, how it's being carved up. Um, and that sharing prosperity more broadly is really essential to the health of society, to the health of our democracy. You know, we've, we obviously saw that in the election. There are a lot of angry, anxious people. I think it, I don't think it's the only thing that led to, to Donald Trump's win. It was misogyny and racism and a thousand other things, but it was certainly a factor. It was certainly a factor on the flip side of why Bernie Sanders won 22 states. I mean, there's a lot of social dislocation, and, and I think we've got we've to figure out how, how corporate America, I'm not talking about redistribution in sort of a top-down way, how corporate America can, can rebalance things. So you, you kind of got at this, but let me ask you to, to kind of dive deeper on the point. 
are, are major companies paying a price for this shift now? Uh, I mean, I, I, it's funny how I, often I hear from industry groups, um, CEOs, you know, we can't find the skilled workers we need for these <laughs> jobs. I hear from, you know, workers and people who deal with the unemployed, you know, there aren't any good jobs out there. Um, something is going wrong in, in this kind of matching, and, and uh, is, is this shift that you're describing part of that? Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, I think there are definitely legitimate skills gaps in some areas. In some cases, I think if employers just paid more, they would actually find the talent they're, they're looking for. In other cases, there is a shortage, you know, particularly in some of the skilled trades, electrical, construction, and so on, that I think is real, and I think there's all kinds of things we need to do in terms of career and technical education for younger people, you know, a whole pipeline through community colleges. But industry training, you know, right, you know, we, we've talked about this. I mean, companies say that, and then it's like, okay, well, are you training anybody? And they're really reluctant, again, to make that investment um, in workers. And it wasn't like that. Um, even in, you know, Peter Capelli from Morton, his research shows that even in the late 70s, you know, the average new worker was getting like two and a half weeks of skilled training a year. By the mid-90s, that was down to 11 hours. And today, most, you know, most surveys are showing most workers haven't had any skills training, not like HR compliance stuff, but actual skills training in the last five years. Um, that's, you know, every company you talk to will tell you, my people are my greatest asset. Well, I'm not exactly treating them like assets, right? right. Yeah, it's striking. I mean, you, it, it's a pretty straightforward thing. A company will say, well, I don't want to spend all this money to train somebody when they could walk down to my competitor, you know, a year later. Um, but at the same time, uh, they, they don't want to have any kind of uh, promise of loyalty on the other side. They, you know, it's, right. um, uh, if you develop the skills yourself, if you spend a lot of money going to community college, you could still find yourself out on the street in two years. That's um, right. And uh, so the, the, the asymmetry or the symmetry is, is there. And, we, and look, we know, we, and we've talked about this, right? There are, there are models that are different. You know, scholars talk about the high road employer in, in some really tough industries, you know. So we, Neil and I were just on the radio doing a show together, and they had on a Costco manager, you know. And that's a company, and again, no company's perfect or whatever, but I've spent enough time with Jim Sinegal, the, the longtime CEO of Costco, and I, I know a lot of their, their folks. And the, the guy who was on, it was not untypical to sort of be there 20 plus years to rise up from sort of the, the floor of the, the store and become a manager. And I know they, they pay well, you know, their compensation's good, their benefits are, are good, certainly for retail, they're, they're you know, it's, it's, they're outsized. And uh, they do a lot of training. They do a lot of cross-functional training. They actually want to provide career paths for, for people. And it makes a difference. And they would tell you that that is, there's a lot of return on investment. They have low turnover. And their people are great with their customers. And that's one of the reasons they have such loyalty from their customers. So they're convinced that it actually makes good business sense. It's not only the right thing to do. Yeah, just striking to me, um, I did a piece on Walmart last year. Obviously, don't, they don't pay as well as, as Costco. They're um, you know, historically viewed in a kind of different lens. But they've kind of seem to be learning some of these same lessons and are spending a lot on training and um, bumped up their wages a, a bit. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, they've invested a lot in training. Um, they have, you know, they're no longer a minimum wage employer, which, you know, for the biggest employer in the country, a million two, uh, you know, workers here in the U.S., two million globally, that's a big, that's a big deal. And I do think that they are, you know, from all I know, watching that return on investment closely, and hopefully they will uh, decide that it is paying off for them and, and that they want to invest more. So uh, all that said, I, I, I do wonder, you know, in the, the era that, that your book's about, these companies, 
Uh, it was a lot of manufacturing. It was a lot of kind of physical processes. Uh, and those business models were, were stable. I, I worry in an information economy, um, you know, work is much more fluid. It's much more team-based. It's much fewer kind of clear hierarchies. A lot of the stuff that made it possible to kind of have a very linear, straightforward career path seem to, to not work quite the same way in a lot of modern companies. I mean, I, GE today is a fascinating example. Yeah. They are in many ways a, a software company. Yeah, they're a tech company. Uh, you know, yep. um, I've been to their headquarters in Boston, or their temporary headquarters in Boston, and it, you, you could be at Google. Um, you know, are there, are there concerns about the ability for this kind of, when business models are constantly changing, the exact needs of the company are changing quickly, um, can this idea of loyalty and this almost paternalistic thing, can that coexist? Yeah, again, I, I don't know. I'm not saying, again, we're going to go back to that golden age. And, and one of the things that was arguably bad about it was how paternalistic it was. And, and I think you're speaking to a real split in the workforce, right? And, and economists talk about this you know, sort of barbell economy with you know, great jobs at the top, really crummy jobs at the bottom. So I, I, first of all, I think we need to do a, a number of things. Education and training is my big thing. If I had, could do only one thing, you know, I guess I'd focus on that. But, but I don't think it's a panacea. I think we also have to take you know, what are bad jobs and make them good jobs by enforcing labor standards, by having a true living wage, by expanding the earned income tax credit, and by just making those jobs, you know, again, have going more to convincing employers that a Costco model works and sharing, sharing the pie better. I think that's a huge piece. And I think we've got to create more kind of middle-skilled jobs um, for people so that you know, we can put them on a path to get a technical certificate or you're going to need some kind of education and skills now, but a, a two-year college degree or even just a technical certificate. And, and we need to create more of, of those kinds of, of jobs. So I think, I think we have to do all of, all of those things. But increasingly, you know, what you see in this tech world, you see it at Google, is, you know, and, and, and all of the companies like it, really probably at GE too now, is if you do have education and skills in this knowledge economy, you can do great. You know, I don't worry about my kids. Um, I, I, you know, I'm in a great job. You know, I'm in a knowledge worker job, and it's all good. Um, the problem is that we're now, the last numbers I saw from Lumina were only 46% of adults in the U.S. have a four-year degree, a two-year degree, or any kind of industry-recognized technical certificate. Those are the people being left behind. We are leaving behind a huge, huge number of people in this country. They are really going to have a hard, and they are having a harder and harder time making it. And all of the pathologies that fall out of that, from the opioid crisis to you know, all kinds of family dislocation and, and dysfunction and, and so on, it's, it's brutal. It's just brutal. So be formulating your own kind of thoughts and questions. Um, one, one last one for me, though, is, is uh, you know, so when I wrote this story about, uh, about the janitors, uh -huh. you know, one of the kind of pieces of pushback I, I got from, uh, from Apple was, well, you know, that's great that they treated their employees so wonder wonderfully at Kodak back in the day, but uh, they're not here anymore for practical purposes. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they, they've not, they were not able to adapt with the times. They were not able to, uh, you know, maintain a, a competitive advantage and, and still be a force that employs mass numbers of people. Um, you know, you mentioned yourself, these, these companies in the 70s were not well run. Um, you know, is there a, is there a trade-off between having efficient, well-run companies that can survive and thrive for many decades and some of the, the labor practices you're talking about? Are those in conflict or not? 
I, I guess in some ways, but again, to me, it's just finding a better balance than where we are. And so, you know, one of the interesting things in my book, to me anyway, was that you, you look at these four companies. So, so for those of you not familiar with it, you know, the reason I picked these four, they were all, um, uh, there were four companies instrumental in the founding of the Committee for Economic Development, which is still around, part of the conference board now. This was back in 1942, um, the organization was founded. And so it was a, just narratively, it was a good way to sort of start the, start the book, have these titans of industry, the leaders of these companies, in one room kind of sharing their vision of post-war American society and economy. And then I weave in and out of these four over this 75-year year arc. But of course, they're really different companies. You had two in uh, General Electric and Coca-Cola that have, by and you know, large, done quite well. They've had their ups and downs. But I mean, they're still at the, pretty much at the top of any you know, successful American company list. And then you had two super strugglers in General Motors and um, uh, and Kodak, right, both of which went into bankruptcy and are shadows of where they were at their, at their height. Um, it didn't matter if you're a worker at, you know, the two kind of winners or the two losers. The story is really the same. Um, the job security is eroded um, for, for pretty much across the board. Um, you know, health care benefits have much more been sh forced onto the shoulders of, of workers and their families, um, you know. Uh, pay has been stagnant for a lot of their workers, even a company like GE at its factories went to a two-tier two wage structure, um, that kind of thing. You know, pensions have, you know, gone away and have been replaced by 401ks, which were never meant to really be, take the place of pensions. So you, you have all, you know, it, it didn't matter. You know, the story's the same for all of these workers. So I would just like to find a, find a better, you know, a better balance. Um, and again, you know, you pointed this out so well. So Silicon Valley, you know, God love them, I'm out in California, spend a fair bit of time in the Bay Area. Um, and those are great jobs, those knowledge worker jobs. I mean, they're, they're great pay and the perks are awesome, right? It's, it's fantastic. Um, but at the low end, it's this other phenomenon that you wrote about so well, which is that work is now just all being contracted out. And so it's a real arm's length relationship. It's almost like, ah, we don't even want to know what goes on over there. And what goes on over there is the workers who have those jobs, who are the janitors, who are the security guards, who drive the shuttle buses, who take, you know, or the maintenance workers, that at all those companies, not picking on Apple, you know, those are people who make $20,000 on average, $25,000. Um, they're mostly uh, African-American and Latino. They have crummy if, you know, if any benefits, um, they're just different worlds, you know, that's, that's what's been called Silicon Valley's invisible workforce, but it's there. And I would add what, what it even goes further up the scale than that, you know, a lot of, a lot of roles that are yes. kind of considered back office roles in Silicon Valley are also contracted out. So the, the pay might be better and uh, might even be middle class by U.S. standards, but once you're paying rent and um, yep. spend some time with, with people from this world, and it's, it's frustrating because they're working in a new place every year or two. Um, you know, there's, they need to get their car repaired, they lose pay for the morning, and it's hard to pay the rent that month. Um, uh, it's, you know, even things that, that are a tier above what we think of janitors, security mm -hmm. guards, that sort of thing, it can be a hard life. Um, for sure. With these companies. Um, it, I, I mean, you know, one, one as, you, as you talk about um, this shift, here's kind of uh, a way I've thought of it. I think there is a pretty good economic case that you can have a more efficient economy when there's uh, kind of more churn in the labor market and, and um, there's not this, you know, the, the, the bad side of paternalism 
is not necessarily there. But what's striking to me is you would think if this was a, a, a kind of just a shift in toward efficiency, you would think like the labor share of income would be stable, right? And that if you're, uh, if you as an employer are offering me a less stable, less permanent arrangement, I should expect a premium in pay because I know I might lose the job in a, you know, in a year. Um, and that has not happened. The reverse has happened. There's been downward pressure on median wages, on uh, average uh, real incomes. So, um, so there's some, some real evidence that this has not been something where there's a trade of stability for more money, you know, less stability right. for more money. Instead, it's been less stability and less money, which is um, not a great place to be. That's right. No, ab absolutely. And what we see, right, we know from the data, um, and you know, it's been great scholarship done on this, is just how volatile people's incomes have become. Their, their schedules get jerked around or one thing goes wrong in their life. You know, they get divorced or somebody in their family gets sick. Um, and, uh, you know, they need to take time away from work or they get crushed with some bills. And uh, it's, you know, people's incomes jump around a, a ton month to month. Right. So with that, uh, go for it. I'll start with you. Sure. Yeah. Oh, there, there's a mic coming, I yeah, think. Yeah, just hold on for just yeah. a second. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Probably should have started somewhere near the center. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Larry Checo. Rick, you, you, you talked about this earlier on when uh, you said that, I think it was General Motors, or not General, Gen GE, the CEO uh, saying, I need to pay my people so that they can buy my product. Henry Ford had that down even Absolutely. way before that. Yep. If this current administration, because I think it's disingenuous for companies to say that there's not enough growth in the economy. I think there's not enough growth because people don't have the money to, to grow it. Why doesn't this administration or can this administration be convinced that if it can raise the salaries of average workers, that the economy may grow more than two to three percent. It could possibly be their salvation in terms of their economic plan. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting. I, I wouldn't hold out a lot of hope, just ideologically, frankly, for the administration or the party currently in control of Congress. I just think it's not where their heads are going to go. You know, perhaps we can see some expansion of the earned income tax credit. Um, it tends to be a, a program more embraced on both sides of the aisle, at least to some degree. I think a lot of the most interesting things where workers may find relief uh, in what you're saying is uh, at the state and local level. Um, and so where you where some of the most interesting, uh, you know, experiments and, and you know, uh, and, and a return to some of these economic ideas are going on are, are you know, are there. And uh, obviously there was a lot of controversy recently over the minimum wage increase in Seattle um, and whether that tipped too far or not. And, you know, I have some questions about the, the last study that was done. But, um, uh, you know, but I, I think you're going to see more interesting and important things done for a while uh, at, at the state and local level than you will. I, you know, I'd add, but, um, I'd add, that, you know, so I come at this from a more macro perspective. I do a lot of stuff on the Federal Reserve and, and uh, monetary policy and that sort of thing. And, and one interesting question is now that we're getting closer to full employment, um, you know, is there some room to let this economy run? And you know, a few years of, of lower unemployment, of 4% unemployment, could do a lot of good. And uh, you know, nothing, nothing is going to make employers pay better, offer better benefits, yep. compete for workers like 
several years of, of you know, what we saw in the late 90s, which was several years of sub-4% unemployment. So yep. um, you know, if we can avoid a recession and, and, and have this mm -hmm. kind of keep growing for a few more years, that might be something that, that shifts the dial in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah, no, and that's a, I mean, that's a great point. So you know, to reinforce that, so, right, so Jared Bernstein, the economist, has done a lot of great work on that. And his, his basic analysis is that you know, one, of the, one of the important things during this golden age is that we were at full employment like 70% of the time. And since the 70s, we've been at full employment about 30% of the time. Um, and when you're at full employment, it, right, it's almost like workers have, he, he almost analogizes it to the kind of collective voice or bargaining power they had you know, when unions were stronger. And so this is a very important thing. The question, of course, and you would know better than I, is whether are there still too many workers out of the labor force and on the sidelines that there's actually a lot of hidden slack right. in the labor market. So. so thank you very much for your review. I appreciate it. Um, so my question is regarding the shift that occurred probably in the late 70s, early 80s, around that period of time. And maybe the tipping point was the dot-com boom and bust. And so my question, I'm a psychologist. And so my question is, what about the role of greed? Hmm. You have anything you'd like to say about that? Sure. Um, I think <laughs> I think greed, you know, is the you know pretty straight up way you could put it. Um, that is that is a factor, and that's why I think, to me, from a corporate lens, not the public policy lens. Although there's some public policy you could do with tax law changes and things that could help nudge corporate policy. But in terms of corporate governance, the hardest thing that's going to be to shift the system back. As I said, it's, it's CEO pay is now tied to stock price so much. Um, it's hard to get people to do something that is not in their personal economic interest. And we're not talking about just a little bit of money. So if you look through this, again, this kind of golden age, when, and when I say golden age, you know, all boats were, were rising. I mean, they, they really were. Compensation in this post-war period, late 40s to early 70s, in real infla in inflation-adjusted terms, you know, it was a 90% plus gain through that period. So in the 40 years since, it's been 10, 12%, right? Something, you know, something like that. I mean, it's, it's just way out of whack. And CEO pay has gone so far, in, again, apples to apples, inflation adjusted, so in like current dollars. CEOs in, through the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, the typical big company CEO made about a million bucks a year. And it's an incredible straight line. I mean, it, it hardly wavers, it goes from like, 950,000 to 1.1 million. I mean, it's just a straight line. It, with this maximizing shareholder value business kicks in. It doubled to 2 million on average in the 80s. It doubled again to 4 million in the 90s. And now we're, depending on how you measure it, somewhere between 12 and 16 million bucks. So that's hard, that's hard to, you know, is that greed? I mean, it's just going to be hard to unwind, I'll tell you that. Two-part question. <clears throat> First, what's the impact of um, free trade and globalization with the shifting of uh, so much um, um, employment, if you will, or, or less technical work over, overseas. Um, second, uh, how do multinationals that are headquartered in the EU or other places in the world, how are they doing comparing to, uh, to our institutions? That's a good. That's a good question, and Neil may know more about the second than, than I do, I'll, and you should respond too because you you maybe have more insight. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, real quickly, my, my take on trade and my, my take on the book, and just sort of looking at a lot of the literature that's been written, is that, um, you know, NAFTA for all the sort of yapping that 
Donald Trump does about it probably was, in the aggregate, there were certainly communities hurt, um, but not that big a deal. And net-net may have even been a, a slight net job creator in the US, that China's entry in the WTO was a much more devastating force across many, many communities in the United States. Again, I don't think those are not things that shouldn't have happened. I'm not a protectionist, but I think we need to do a lot more to take care of individuals and communities that have been disrupted and people have been dislocated. We just don't, we don't do that very well. Um, and so I, I, from everything I've seen, you know, China's had a, a, a big impact across a lot of uh, a lot of the American heartland and, 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 in, and in other communities. And I'm not, I'm actually not, I don't know much about the second, how, exactly how to compare. First on China, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think the evidence has gotten more powerful in the last just two, three years mm -hmm. of the, the significance of the rise of China uh, in, in affecting so many industries, so many communities in the US and Western Europe. Um, I would add there's actually some good news contained in that, which is um, if you can you think of basically China and, and India, you know, a couple billion people, entering the global economy as a one-time shock, there's not another China out there, right? So, so China is now largely integrated in the, in the global economy, um, and there's no other country of that size poised to enter the global economy and create new competition. So you know, in that sense, maybe it was a one-time shock that has mostly passed, especially as their wages, you know, there is, yeah, there is wage wise. inflation in China. They're, mm -hmm. they're, uh, in fact, the, the lowest value stuff is not happening in China anymore. It's Vietnam or Bangladesh. Um, so that's on the, on the kind of trade piece. On international, I think there's an interesting example from Germany, um, which does some really interesting things around worker councils and kind of, um, you know, they have some things that are very similar to, to what you describe in, in, in the book in terms of um, the idea of a company as a kind of shared enterprise that the shareholders, the management, and, uh, and labor are working together to try and make successful. You know, it's hard to look at Germany and say these are not successful companies. These are highly competitive on the international stage, yep. well-run companies. Um, but just have different different approach to this uh, to all these questions than, than U.S. companies. I will say Germany does have an undervalued currency due to the euro and an eight percent current account surplus, which is not really sustainable for the rest of the world. But um, but there's a lot to, to learn from Germany. Yeah. Yeah. We have a question from Twitter from at Zach Combs. Are public policy or market corporate solutions more effective to advance shared prosperity or more feasible? So what, did sorry, you, say it again? Did you catch that? Yeah, sorry. Public policy or market corporate solutions more effective oh. to advance shared ah. prosperity? <laughs> you know, again, I'm not an either or kind of guy. I, I really, I think that all, it's got to be both and. It's got to be all of the above. I, I think we need a whole, you know, laundry list of public policy changes and solutions. Um, uh, and, you know, again, a, a creating a real living wage for folks, and then I'd love to see it indexed to inflation and let's stop fighting about it all the time would be really nice. As I said, expanding the EITC, I think, you know, creating portable benefits for uh, the growing ranks, and they tend to be overblown the way people think about it, but the rise of independent contractors, gig workers, it's happening, it's happening fast. Um, Aspen's done great, is doing great work in, in trying to expand portable benefits for those people that they can take with them from job to job, place to place. I think that there are important tax law changes, again, that, that could help nudge companies um, uh, stop making it so tax advantage to give CEOs these fat pay packages. Um, and as I said, huge investments in education. But, but I also think that the market has to move, and, and so, and I'll, I'll wrap it up in a second because I, I want to hear what Neil says, but, but I also think that there are pressures that 
can be exercised to, to shift corporate culture. And, and I'm not wildly optimistic, but I think we need to try and I think we need to, to move in this direction. So, you know, we can act as employees. If we're lucky enough to be knowledge workers and our talent is in demand, we can um, decide where we want to work and we can work at companies and, you know, a lot of millennials are doing this, right? If, if they want to work at a place that shares their values, including how they treat all their colleagues down to those on the front lines. Um, don't go work at a place that's crummy to some of its people. Um, we as consumers, there's a lot of information out there through Glassdoor and Payscale and other, you know, digital platforms now where you can actually peek behind the curtain of companies and see, you know, do I want to put my dollars in this place uh, as a consumer? And again, you need to have a certain level of wealth to make those choices. But if you do, put them in a place that shares your values. Um, and very much, you know, as an investor, and I think if there is going to be corporate change, it's going to be because the capital markets can use their it, its leverage to, to change corporate behavior. And you are seeing more and more big investors, so endowments, big pension plans, foundations, um, they're starting to wake up and say, wow, we have all this capital that's out there. Where do we want to put it that's aligned with our social values? And so you know, one in five investment dollars now that's under management in the US, about $9 trillion, is at least going through some kind of socially responsible investing screen. That's a really powerful trend. Again, it's got a long way to go. There's maybe the number's a bit overinflated for different reasons. But it's powerful, and, and I could see corporate behavior shifting in response to, to those pressures. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be brief. I, I, I see these uh, kind of market forces and political forces as being deeply intertwined on this in ways that you know I don't I don't think was even widely understood 10 or 20 years ago. I, I feel like we're we're coming to grips more and more with the ways in which changes in corporate governance and how um, you know the incentives facing CEOs, how those interact with tax policy, how those interact with regulatory policy, um, you know, how union power is tied to both kind of business practices and, and political choices that are made. Um, and so I, you know, I, I don't think of it as kind of a, uh, a one or the other, but, but rather how do these forces interact with each other? Yeah. Hi, Rick. Yeah. Larry Williams. Hey, Larry. Um, so uh, I'm curious what the role of uh, the uh, prison industrial complex had in allowing, hmm. kind of aiding and abetting corporations to whittle down uh, union power and also just the worker movement because so much that's done um, by corporations is now being done in prisons. Um, and then thinking about it through the context of um, when Trump got into office, the stock for like CCA was going down, the Corrections Corporation of America, and a lot of that stock went up when Jeff Sessions started doing the, the reversal. So I'm curious what you think about that. Huh. So it's a great, it's a great uh, great question. It's something I, I haven't looked at a ton in terms of its effect on the decline of organized labor, um, although it sounds like you, you know some stuff you know, going on. I, I think there is a huge issue you know, with um, uh, you know, prisoners coming out of, right, of prison and uh, needing employment. And uh, you know, there's been the whole ban the box initiative, and a number of companies have taken that on. Um, but that's still an area that needs a lot more to happen. I mean, it's you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who are released back into the community every year, and you know I think it's what one in three Americans have some kind of criminal background. So we all you know it's your your neighbor, or your cousin, or you know whatever. And uh, we a lot of them are not dangerous to society. And what do they need? They need a job, you know. And it's hard. They can't get jobs. They can't get housing. They can't get 
you know, sometimes they're stymied from the educational path they want. It's, it's, really, it's really tough. We, we tend to keep punishing them over and over and over again. Um, so I've thought about that effect on employment and, and labor much, much, much um, more. By the way, I, I just take one more second. So Larry, who asked the question, just deserves a shout out. Um, so um, he, he is a, a, a great guy who just um, has launched um, kind of in its latest and greatest iteration a, um, a digital platform called UnionBase. And UnionBase is um, meant for people to be able to go on and uh, if they work at a place and they're interested in being organized by real unions, union organizers, it's a way for them to connect into um, unions and, uh, and begin to try and organize their, work, their workplace. And so he's trying to use technology uh, as a way to lift jobs and lift people. So I wanted to give you a shout out. Hi, uh, just a quick question here from, uh, from me at the Financial Security Program. We, we do a lot of things here at Aspen in a number of programs, uh, and it's a little bit of a chicken and egg sometimes, right? So we think workers need some level of security and lack of precarity to be able to take the risks to invest in themselves going forward. Um, and we've certainly seen that it's not just incomes that have been stagnant, but that wealth disparities have also been tied up in a lot of the changes in corporate governance and a lot of changes in the nature of work. Um, so I wondered if, beyond the pension piece, have you seen any other like interplay between kind of what's happening with the changing nature of work and what's happening with people's broader balance sheet opportunities uh, and that level? And also, you know, I think we'd be remiss to not mention that at the same time that we're talking about the need to think about the quality of jobs and the future of employment, that there's a whole parallel conversation going on, sometimes in our own rooms here, around the solution is really just about um, a diff different kind of cash transfer system or a, you know, a basic income idea and things like that. And I think that people are, um, we've, we've not been pulling those conversations together enough. And so I wonder if you might talk about both of those aspects a little bit or if, if anything touches you on start, this. Do you start with this one? Um, I'll go for it. So, okay, so uh, I'll try and do real quickly. So, uh, you know, one place, you know, that, that ends up being a balance sheet issue for people because it, it is, is healthcare, you know, where we've seen just a tremendous erosion in corporate provided healthcare um, and, and health coverage. So, you know, the fight to preserve the ACA, I think, is hugely important. I, I, I totally get it. You know, but it's relatively few people who use that, use the exchanges, you know, 11, 12 million people, right, directly. There's also the Medicaid expansion. Um, but even that, right, you know, Medicaid's, what, 70 million, Medicare's 55 million. 150 million people get their um, uh, health coverage through an employer. And that system's been just slowly unwinding over you know, the last 30 or 40 years, to the point where a number of healthcare experts say to me, you know, a lot of people can't even take advantage of the coverage they have because the out-of-pocket costs are so expensive. Um, and so, you know, that's been a real, you know, it's just been slowly bleeding to death for 30 or 40 years, and I, I don't think it's gotten the attention that, that it deserves. Um, so so that's, a, that's a real concern, I think. Um, the other one, the other one that's, I would say, and then maybe we can come back to UBI, you can do you, and then I'll come back to UBI, but the, the, the other thing that really hit me is how bound up all this is. I was in um, South Bend, Indiana a week or so ago. The Drucker Institute were doing some work there around lifelong learning and trying to help the city think through some lifelong learning initiatives, and I was talking to the mayor there, um, and, uh, and we were talking about career and technical education and the need to provide more and, and 
have those skilled trades pass for young people. And he said, yeah, we could probably do more, but we get it. We're not trying to put every kid on a four-year college path. We, we recognize the import of this. And he said, but that's not really the problem. And I said, what's the problem? He said, the real problem is that a lot of the families where those kids could really benefit from this track, there's so much violence in their neighborhoods, and they come to school so hungry. He said, I got to fix those things before I can even start to worry about this thing. And it really, it was not only gut-wrenching, but it just showed me how bound up all these things are together. You know? Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you, you probably know better than me, um, the ways in which, it's what you just said, the ways in which uh, not having wealth, not having a stock of, of kind of funds and resources can interplay with your ability to, to have an income and, and, and have a job. You know, if I, if I get yeah. laid off tomorrow, I have savings. I'll be fine. I can ride out, you know, a few months and, and uh, have time to kind of figure out the next thing. And um, if, you know, if, if you have no money in the bank, if you have no access to credit, if you have no ability to ride out the ups and downs of, of an existence, um, it's, it's harder to make sure that you're able to find that next job and, you know, get the child care, get the, get, get the car, get the, yeah. you know, yeah. get a ride to work. Um, uh, you know, the idea of, of you know, being laid up, you know, be, losing your job because you can't get to work because your car needed to be repaired and you didn't have $500 to repair your car is a heartbreaking kind of thing. And um, yet there's some statistic that uh, the percentage of workers who couldn't afford a $400 car yeah. repair is shockingly large. Yeah, it's about half. Um, and that's Fed numbers. I mean, those are that's right. a good um, survey. Yeah. So yeah. I, you know, right. I that, that's more descriptive than 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 solution oriented. Um, you know, I, I I've been uh, surprised by the way the universal basic income idea has kind of taken off, especially among the kind of tech um, elite. Uh, and I get why it's kind of this cool new idea and 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 seems kind of like a, a way to hack all these problems. Um, but you know, to me, like there's an existing social safety net that is flawed in a lot of ways, but it it exists and. To, to not focus on either defending or enhancing that, and instead try and think up this big new thing that would be massively expensive and controversial in its own right, strikes me as kind of uh, an error that I think tech people make a lot, which is looking at the cool new thing rather than trying to make what already exists work better and, and do that hard work. But that is, um, that is just a personal impression, and I'm sure UBI enthusiasts can explain why I'm wrong. <laughs> Um, I have Mike. Um, hi, I'm Sarah Anderson with the Institute for Policy Studies. Hi, and when you were speaking a few minutes ago about what investors can do and looking for information on pay scale and all that, I thought you might mention that we can look forward, hopefully, to a new source of information early ne next year, okay. the ratio between CEO and worker pay, which um, public companies are supposed to have to report, yeah. and, and why you think that that is an important metric. So right. So if this if this isn't you know deep sixth, which I'm not you know who knows. Um, it's looking pretty good. For good. Now. Good. Well, that's good. So right. So hopefully right. This uh, um, screw out a Dodd Frank right. That that uh, you know there will have to be every company disclose its CEO pay to average worker pay. Right. We know we know the history in the in the golden age and through the 60s it was like 25 to one something in that ballpark. It's now you know hundreds of times to one and. Um, and so, uh, but look at it at the company level, and um, uh, there's some flaws, you know, that many co companies have pointed out to, you know, perhaps in how it could be calculated apples to apples across companies and, and, and things like that. But I, but I think it is a great, I think it is a great thing because I think it will, it, it may serve to embarrass some companies into doing better um, by their people. So I, I defer to the psychologist or psychiatrist who who, who said before, but. You know, 
embarrassment and fear shouldn't be underrated as ways to maybe move the market. Um, so you know maybe that'll serve a little bit on the embarrassment side. The other the other positive thing I guess I would say is on the fear side. I, I do see more and more um, CEOs that that actually are starting to to think about um, again this idea of sharing prosperity more broadly. What is their role and their company's role and responsibility in that? And and I think some of it is, you know, is because is they want to do the right things. They're good, good, some of my best friends are CEOs. They're good, they're good people out there who, who want to do the right thing. But there also is some fear setting in, which is that, um, you know, capitalism, some would say, and I've heard some increasingly say, may not survive unless this problem is taken care of. And that there is definitely some, some motivation to start to think, hey, what, do, what are we going to do you know, if you, if you think of Nick Hanauer, right, that, you, know, um, you know, he would say, well, there's going to be people with pitchforks in the streets if you're not careful. Others, I think, which wouldn't go that far, but might say, you know, we might end up with Bernie Sanders or someone like him as president, and we're not going to like that either because we're going to be so regulated and capitalism, as we know, it's going to look a lot different. I think fear is a great motivator, um, and so maybe some CEOs are, are waking up a little bit. Uh, my name is Mauro Branelli. I'm uh, an independent consultant working on poverty alleviation. Uh, you started to touch on this in your last answer, but my question is, um, what what do you know of the attitudes of corporations to U.S. employment? You hear the stat that there are something like two million open positions that simply can't get filled in the United States. Um, and what what is their feeling in terms of their responsibility to fill those jobs with humans and Americans? Or do they feel that the solution lies you know, elsewhere, either by immigra uh, immigrants who are skilled or you know, potentially outsourcing that work to robots or, or some other source? Do you have an idea of, of what corporations think about all this? Again, you know, you, you hate to, I've probably been painting with a broad brush all afternoon, but you, you hate to you know, paint with, with too broad of a brush. I, you know, again, I, I think it's mixed. Look, they're not investing enough we know by all the data that investing in people um, in terms of training is just in terms of either corporate provided or corporate paid for, or corporate sponsored training is on the decline. Both, both those things are on a steady downward trend. Um, that doesn't bode well, I don't think. That's not, that's not good news. Um, you openly hear some CEOs who will say, in the fast food industry in particular, uh, who will say, Hey, you raise you go you raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. We're all we're all robots making your burgers. That's all that that's going to do. And the, you know, people with only the skills to make hamburgers don't deserve or aren't worth, don't have the skills to command 15 dollars an hour. Uh, you know, again, I, I would really argue with that from a kind of moral and societal point of view. But you know, so clearly some you know. Some really, some really think that. And again, I do think you have a whole other set of, of CEOs who are at least starting to think about um, that the whole system just might unwind. Their operating license, if you will, might be taken away unless they start to do something about it. So I think it's a mixed bag out there. OK, I've got the mic, which is roaming around in strange <laughs> ways. Um, OK, first comment, no news to anyone. You can get your four-year college degree and still not get a job. Yeah. And we know so many stories about young people in their parents' basement and so on. So a lot depends on what you major in. And not everybody wants to do coding or get into some of the IT fields. But my question is this. There are alternative ways that are people, people are trying to organize to get some sort of security. Unions, of course, are one way. 
But you have people now in co-working spaces mm -hmm. and some thought of some kind of solidarity starting a joint business or a cooperative model. I'd like you to talk a little bit about some alternative ways of workers finding security. Again, the union might be you know, the gold standard, but not everyone's gonna go that route. And th there are other ways. We've had, of course, in India, the Self-Employed Women's Association. That's from a very different stratum. But do explore some other options. Yeah, so, um you know, with all so with all due respect to Larry, I mentioned in union base, which I, I think is really important, and and it, but it's early, and I think he's got a really tall mountain to climb, and and I think, you know, getting back to the levels of unionization and collective bargaining, it's just really hard. You know, structurally, we're in a in a very different kind of economy, so I I think these alt alt labor kind of models are really important. Um, you know, David Rolfe from the SEIU has done great work in this area and kind of positing and and experimenting with different different models and he talks about you know some some of the things that we talked about and you mentioned you know worker cooperatives or you know company owned uh, businesses um, it's a really small fraction of companies that are, are like that now um, uh, co-determination I think is the is the term of art for what you mentioned like they have in Germany so workers finding sort of some collective power and voice by sitting on um, you know, corporate boards and, uh, and having real input into managerial decisions um, you know, is, is another model. There's some interesting things going on with technology, again, that have provided some collective power and voice. So I'm thinking of things like coworker.org, um, which allows workers through a common digital platform to, um, to, to kind of realize they're, they're all having a common problem and, and through signature collection and other things begin to leverage some uh, kind of countervailing power against a, a company and they've done some really cool things at some of the big banks and at Starbucks and other things. Um, uh, another platform like that is our Walmart, uh, which is a, a way for Walmart workers to kind of find each other and support each other and, and share collective knowledge and, and they're doing some really interesting and, and very important and very important work. I think the you know the concern is that none of that is as good as collective bargaining and 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 sitting down and, and hammering out an enforceable labor contract, um, uh, but but again I, I'm not sure we're going to go back to that and I think just swinging even a little bit in the right direction is great. I'll tell you one great great thing which is um, why I always think you know this idea of just having more balance right in the economy is so important. I, I've learned. And I never met him, but reading a lot of Peter Drucker and my, my work at the Drucker Institute, he was a big believer in having this kind of just a better balance. And I think the pendulums swung so much to corporate power. There is no countervailing labor power. And and if you go in, we've we've taken his house where Peter and his wife Doris, who died at age 103 a couple years ago, um, lived in Claremont, uh, in Southern California, and. Uh, they're, we've turned their house into a little house museum, a little private house museum. And you go in and we have two kind of uh, things on the wall there. One is a thank you note from Jack Welch, thanking the CEO of General Electric, who famously nuked 170,000 jobs during his tenure, Neutron Jack, um, on the wall, uh, thanking Peter for his consulting. Peter was never a fan of that kind of stuff, but he did consult with Welch and GE for a long time. And then the other thank you note that we juxtapose it with is a thank you note from Cesar Chavez thanking Peter for his consulting. And I always just thought, because he did a lot of work with unions, and I always thought that spoke volumes, because he really believed in the need to have just 
that countervailing powers is a good thing. It holds everybody in check. So I have the mic. <laughs> we, we both got the mic at the same time. So um, I, I'm Barbara Dyer, and uh, when it, it really fits with your point about balance. I mean, we've got more than 6 million firms in the US economy, and a fraction of them are publicly traded firms, but there are a lot of others. So I wonder, and then there's this whole question of startups, and you know, the startup numbers have been kind of in decline. Big decline. Um, yeah. But can you talk about that, you know, that these other parts of the economy, because really you're, a lot of what you've described is particular to publicly traded companies, yeah. uh, and how what we have now compares to this golden era that you've talked about? Hmm. It's, a great, it's a great question, and I, and I have to confess, I haven't spent a ton of time, I haven't spent a ton of time looking at private companies or small and medium, you know, Small and medium enterprises that are that are maybe in that camp. Uh, it used to be, and I, and I don't know. I'd be curious what Neil thinks. What your insight would be. So it used to be that um, the way these big companies went, the GEs and GMs, uh, you know, they would set the tone and often the wage patterns and everything else that really again kind of rippled across the whole economy. I don't know if it's more disjointed now, and it, and it doesn't have that that effect. But it sounds like maybe you're. You're suggesting it does. I, I, and I don't know if, if there have been studies that have sort of looked at that or not. But it's a really, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing whether there could be standard setters anymore. Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting work. Um, in fact, the the Obama Council of Economic Advisors did some work on labor market monopsony. Does does industry consolidation and um, <clears throat> You know, having uh, a superstar firms that control, you know, huge industries, um, is that a factor in holding down wages? And I think there's some interesting evidence that that might be the case. Um, then you get into the question of why are there these superstar firms? Is that is that technology? Is that the the fact that the the economics of these industries are changing? Is it antitrust enforcement? Um, and so I, I think there's. Uh, you know, a really interesting set of research that's kind of bubbling up, trying to understand the, the kind of micro roots. You know, are this story of fewer startups and this story of downward pressure on middle class wages, are they intertwined in, in some way that we don't really fully understand just yet? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, here. <laughs> uh, this is uh, Ethan Pollock with the Aspen's uh, Future of Work Initiative. Uh, first off, Rick and Neil, thank you so much for coming. This is uh, just a fascinating discussion. Um, <clears throat> I, can everyone hear me? I'm getting. Okay, great. Um, I have a, a question, a twofold question. The first is on um, the um, disclosure. You know, you had talked a bit about how consumers uh, could, and, and you know, social impact investors can really look at companies and kind of invest, you know, decide to either work for or um, mm -hmm. you know, purchase from or invest in companies that really align with the principles. Um, I'm just wondering. You know, you mentioned burning glass, or uh, not burning glass, a uh, glass, uh, glass door. Uh -huh. um, it, it, they have, you know, good reviews, and, and it is helpful. But nonetheless, you know, the last time that we did any type of um, survey on uh, from of work of um, employers on on how they train their workers was back in the mid '90s, I believe, and even that did not have kind of actual company by company data. So it it seems that we are still a little limited in terms of how we can quantitatively compare the training practices, both in terms of how much uh, businesses are training. And then also, what's the distribu distribution of that to make sure that that training is right. actually getting to low and middle income workers as opposed to just luxury vacations for CEOs? Um, <clears throat> so, you know, how do consumers and you know investors um, and potential workers, if they want to 
to try and decide if they want to work at a certain company, you know, how do they figure out which companies actually align with their principles in the absence of a lot of that comprehensive data? Yeah. So since we're near the end, can, why don't we um, go and do a couple of other? Yeah. And I want to make sure we get this very patient yeah. lady, my friend here in the front. So do so. you and then. Okay. okay. So my name's Eddie Eiches, and I'm a former union president. And I, I think the, one of the real reasons why the unions failed, including in the earlier period, was while you might have, well, you might have seen Walter Ruther talk about civil rights and, and clearly traditional bargaining uh, issues, uh, it was confrontational, and it didn't have to do with the way in which GE was producing the cars. That was not a critical priority, you know, and going back to your reference to Germany. And, and union leadership frequently can't get beyond traditional issues as opposed to providing what management perceives as value added. That is, getting the product out in a better way and uh, adapting to uh, the, you know, what management, you know, what the future is in terms of automation. And I just, mm -hmm. for whatever that's worth. <laughs> yep. Great. Thank you. Looking to the future. Uh, with technology and automation, do you think, one, there will be enough jobs for the people all the way down to the bottom? And what about this concept of a stipend, uh, a, a government-issued minimum wage for everybody? Right. Great. You want to start with the first? Yeah, so let me just real quickly, I'll take these, take these two. Um, so... Uh, in terms of uh, how can you kind of peek behind the curtain and, and get data on whether companies are doing enough training and development of their people. I think Glassdoor, I'm, I'm quite sure, because we were doing a bunch of work with some different data sets at the Drucker Institute, does now have some kind of, they might call it career opportunities. They, you have to look what's behind some of the weird labeling on some of these things. Um, but I'm pretty sure they, they measure some of, some of that. And you could also, you know, you could look at how it's ranked because you can search by different, you know, wage levels at a company. So there are ways to sort some of that information. Payscale does the same thing. And then a number of the ESG, environmental, social, and governance data providers, so the ones who are feeding data to these socially responsible investing funds, and there's a bunch of them, MSCI and Sustainalytics and CSR Hub and on and on, they, they, um, they do look at, uh, at least at some level, they try and look at training um, uh, for people. Um, and again, sometimes it's hard. You got to get down to the subatomic level of their numbers, but, but they're there. Um, and it just takes a little work. And if you want to reach out to me, I can try and help you figure that out. Um, uh, so to answer your question, then, I, then Neil, I'll give it to you, is um, on, the, um, uh, on the side of you had two questions. I remember you ended with UBI. What was the first? Oh, robot. I, I don't think robots are going to eat all our jobs. Um, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people. Um, you know, economists are kind of split, experts are kind of split. I, I do think all kinds of new tasks will be, you know, created that we can't even imagine yet. I think jobs will be increasingly split. I think more people work alongside machines. I think there'll be whole new fields we can't even imagine. But I think this, and you said all the way to the bottom, it is the people who are most vulnerable, who don't have the education and skills, who will be dislocated and disrupted to an ever greater degree and in large part because of automation. And, um, and in turn, again, unless we figure out how to share the pie more broadly, that is going to lead to more and more social unrest, I, I fear. Um, uh, in terms of universal basic income, and Neil kind of you know, addressed this, I, I, you know, I'm not a huge 
fan of it. I'm not deeply against it. I, I think, and I've gotten more intrigued by it as the conversation has, has continued. I have lots of questions of whether it's enough money. They talk about, you know, around $1,000 a month to really give a lot of bargaining power. They say, well, people could walk away from a bad job. I'm not sure that's enough money to do that on. Uh, it is a huge aggregate cost, $3 trillion or more. You know, it's a, it's a lot of money uh, to sort of where are we going to come up with that? How is it going to be funded? I worry about whether it could pass. Just I think too many Americans will think it's going to make people lazy. I, I don't think the evidence shows that from the work that's been done and, and actual experiments that have played out on the ground. But I, I don't politically it's hard to hard to imagine. I worry that conservatives will hijack it and say, oh, now you have this and get rid of every other social safety net program. So all those things are a concern. The one reason I like it is because there is so much volatility in income. I think if even that amount of 1000 bucks a month or so would do a lot to just make people's lives less terrible um, by smoothing, giving them some floor that would smooth out these wild gyrations that most people have. So that intrigues me, but I don't know if it's enough to overcome all the other stuff. So I. Um I agree with a lot of that uh, on, on both productivity optimism, uh, you know, the robots aren't going to take all of our jobs, and on both some of the appeal and, and limitations of, of UBI. But part of the reason I have resistance actually is a nice way to end this session. Um, you know, I think one thing I'm coming to grips with more and more is, is people want to work. Work you know, gives people meaning in their lives. It's not just about an income. It's about, about your role in society, about status. And you know, I think some of what's been lost in the last couple of generations is not just incomes. I can measure the incomes, and we can talk about that all day long. It's also, um, you know, a sense of opportunity and purpose. And you know, when I was in Rochester a couple months ago, reporting my story, talking to some of these retired Kodak people who worked as a secretary or as a forklift operator, um, you know, they had these fond memories of this being kind of a, a driving purpose of their life. And the money, even you know, even then, the money wasn't outlandish. It wasn't fantastic, but. Um, but that sense of purpose is really important, and figuring out ways to, to rebuild the, that kind of connective tissue in the economy and society, I think, um, is important. And I think Rick's book is a, is a great contributor to that debate and that understanding. So thank you, Rick, and thank you, yeah. Aspen. Thank you so much. And in, the, uh, in, the, in the spirit of keeping capitalism alive, we'll be selling books outside, <laughs> and I'm happy to, to sign one. So. <laughs> thank you both so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for coming to Aspen. Hey, how are you? Hey, thanks for coming out. Okay, yeah. Okay, great. Okay, thanks. How are you?